and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Carrie A. Goldberg, the owner of C.A. Goldberg PLLC. We will discuss her new book, Nobody's Victims, Fighting Psychos, Stalkers, Pervs, and Trolls, which is published by Plume, an imprint of Penguin Random House. So welcome to the show, Carrie. Thank you, Brian. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I, I, I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to interviewing you because I read your book uh, during the last week and it absolutely floored me. I mean, it's just un- unbelievably moving and horrifying. Um, and, and I really commend you on, on, on writing a work this important. Thank you. I've been, I've been a fan of yours on Twitter for quite some time. And so it's, it's a privilege to, to be here. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, that, that's, that's a huge honor for me as well. Um, so I, I, I wonder for people who aren't already following you and for what, for what it's worth, anyone who isn't should be, um, I wonder if you can talk to the listeners for a minute about who you represent and why you represent them. Okay. Uh, so I'm a lawyer in Brooklyn and I, my law firm fights for victims of online harassment, sexual assault, blackmail, um, all my clients um, have one thing in common, which is that they're people that have been under attack or they've been attacked. And at my firm, we fight for justice in all sorts of different ways. And it really depends on what the client wants, whether it's a restraining order, money, that POS to be thrown in jail, um, those pictures to be taken off the Internet. Justice looks different for everybody. And there's a lot of triaging that goes into these cases because my clients uh, sometimes are in really serious emergency situations. But tech tech plays a large role in many of our cases. Mm-hmm. Well, Carrie, could, could, could you maybe like tell a representative story of one of your clients? Because I really think without hearing like the, the gory details of what has happened or rather maybe what's been done, what's, what, what somebody's perpetrated on some of these people, you really can't understand how horrible it was. I would be happy to, because I agree that these concepts are abstract and no one really, until you actually hear, hear the stories, um, there's the, they're just ideas. Um, so I'd like to tell you about, uh, the story of, a young woman who lived in the Boston area who was in her early 20s when she came to us. And she was referred to me by a college friend of mine. And at the time we entered the scene, she was so paranoid, rightfully so, as you'll find out, that she didn't even trust that I was who I said I was. She thought perhaps the her perpetrator had created my website had bought this phone number and it took a couple days to actually, you know, tell her, yes, we are who we are and we are going to get um, the feds involved in, in uh, fighting against your insane attacker. So she was um, living in a shared home with three other people and they were looking for a roommate. So they put an ad on Craigslist And this nice young man um, who was into computer science and had just graduated from Rensselaer answered the ad, came to the apartment, and looked it over. 
he seemed totally fine. So they offered him the spare bedroom and he moved in a few days later. And immediately things were strange. Like he was clogging up the toilet. He was smearing yogurt on the walls. And when my client confronted him, he freaked out. And then her online, her she always kept a diary on her computer. And she, in her diary, wrote, you know, all the most intimate things about, about herself. And before long, she over 200 people had received this diary. It talked about her abortion. It talked about all sorts of different things. And then she started getting nonstop text messages from him, you know, telling her that, you know, she was an evil person and um, talking about the abortion that she'd had, you know, t- types of sex that, that she talked about in her, in her email. And so she immediately after um, just a few weeks of this moved out, she moved back home with her parents. And then things just got even worse. Uh, Suddenly collages of her naked pictures were being sent to people. And somebody impersonating her father, who was a doctor, started sending his own colleagues at his hospital naked pictures of her saying, isn't my daughter hot? Wouldn't you like to jerk off to her? And then um, her mom started getting impersonated and um, and it, and then my client, it looked as though my client was sending her mom child pornography and we're talking about really sadistic child pornography. And it, this was going on for several months and it, there, there's a lot more details. Um, my client was a dog walker and, and, uh, you know, fake profiles suggesting that she was killing her client's pets came up. He started impersonating her, um, and told one of her clients that she'd killed the cat and, and the body was decomposing in the freezer. Um, I mean, it was, it was across platforms. It was, it was so creative. Um, and, and he was, he was using anonymizing software, VPNs, Tutanota to create fake emails, um, the Tor browser, of course. And so even when she went to local police and said, listen, I know who it is they couldn't, they didn't have any like solid proof. (laughs) And so when she came to us, we'd already established a really great relationship with uh, a prosecutor at the uh, Department of Justice, Computer Crime, Intellectual Property Division, Mona Sedke. And she always was, she's always somebody who's in the mood for, for a stumper of a case. And even she and the amazing detectives that she was working with were like, there, I mean, we can't find anything like that actually goes back to his devices. We know it's him. Um, finally, there, there was something that went to his device. And in addition to that, he had started um, making bomb threats to the local schools in the town. And he was doing it on a near daily basis. So uh, you know, at, at these elementary schools and completely scaring the crap out of everybody, diverting social services and emergency resources to the schools on a nearly daily basis. And, um, you know, we finally got enough evidence that he could be arrested. And at the sentencing, 
the courtroom, it was, I've never seen this before. The courtroom was overflowing with people who'd been traumatized by him. Neighbors, all of my clients, um, former colleagues who'd been harassed by him, her parents, um, and then the townspeople, the, the principals from the schools, teachers from the schools, like people were like in tears when they were describing to the court what kind of um, damage this person had done. And his lawyers basically said, listen, he didn't do anything. He didn't rape anybody. He didn't kill anybody. Everything he did was, you know, from this comfort of his own home from his computer. And one of the other things he had done was create fake profiles of my client um, showing that she was a prostitute. And men actually came to, to her parents' home looking for her. Um, so, you know, we had to explain to the judge, and Mona did a great job, no, 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 these are not online crimes. He may have used the internet as a weapon, but all of this was happening to real life people with offline careers and jobs and educations. And, and um, you know, this, it was just so enveloping for my client. And um, ultimately, um, he pled guilty to cyber stalking and I think, um, and, and child pornography and, ended up getting sentenced to 17 and a half years in prison. And one of the big things that was debated was whether or not some of the child pornography that he'd sent in my client's name was quote unquote sadistic. So that's, that's a story. And it's a really important one in that it shows that you don't, you know, like a lot of people want to blame the victim. They want to say, Oh, well, you know, you shouldn't have, dated that guy? Didn't you see the red flags? Like, how did you end up in that abusive relationship? Or, you know, why did you go on that date and get drunk? This is somebody who, you know, didn't have a relationship with this guy, was just looking for a roommate. So we are all a moment away from crossing paths with somebody who is unstable and becomes hellbent on our destruction. And that's why the, the, the crimes in the justice system when it comes to internet crimes really, really matters, not just for victims, but for everyone, because anybody could become a victim. Yeah, no, that story, I mean, as terrifying it is, 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 is just seems so perfectly representative of every one of the stories that you tell in this book. And I just can't help but wonder, like, how to these people, almost almost all of them, sadly, men, get away with this kind of behavior for for so long with with so few consequences. I mean, the only thing really distinguishing the story you just told from a lot of the other ones is that he went to prison for longer. It seems like than a lot of these other people do. Well, and also the the stories that I tell are not necessarily representative of the stories out there because. You know, she was able to find us um, as her lawyer, and we had this great connection with the Department of Justice. Most people don't have that. And so they're having to navigate this whole system on their own and often not success successfully. And so, you know, I, I want this book to be a tool for other people who don't necessarily have the benefit of a lawyer. Um, although, you know, like... <laughs> I've got, you know, a law firm and um, amazing lawyers that, that can help in these situations for anybody. Um, 
But I mean, it's, it is upsetting because it, you know, like there are examples of, of like this man, Ryan Lynn, um, the Juan Thompson case that I talk about, uh, Matthew Herrick, which hopefully we can talk about, um, where, you know, these offenders are just on an absolute scorched earth attack plan. And it takes the, the uh, law enforcers to, to stop them. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you seem remarkably good at like eventually managing to leverage law enforcement into doing something. But I got to say, like reading your book, it was like incredibly fust- frustrating how much they sort of dragged their heels and oftentimes even seemed to be, you know, almost as abusive as the abusers were or like a tool the abusers could use against the people they were abusing. And I I really don't get it. Like, why is that happening? I mean, it reminded me of the, you know, the Kate Manny's idea of like empathy or something. I mean, is somehow the law enforcement or the government looking at what these people are doing and saying, like, well, you know, it's not such a big deal or what's, what's happening there? Well, I think that, you know, with internet crimes, there's a reluctance to just, you know, for law enforcers to really get into the guts of, of the evidence. And in some ways, these cases should be easier to prosecute and to investigate because there's black and white evidence. Every single communication that happens online originates from somewhere you know, is sent through a device and through a server. And even with the anonymizing software that a lot of offenders use, they can be, you know, like everyone makes a mistake. We've never had a case where, you know, an offender doesn't make a mistake. And so they can be caught. But, you know, we, we our law enforcers are just more used to dealing with, with, you know, physical crimes, theft, crimes that, you know, theoretically should be harder to investigate. And there's also this, this um, attitude that we often get, which is when it's a computer crime, well, how do you know it was really him? What if he was, what if he was hacked? Um, and then there's also the jurisdictional issue. There's, you know, the, the victim reports it where she lives and the law enforcers in that community say, well, it doesn't matter where you live. Where does the offender live? And so then she reports it where the offender lives. And they say, well, it doesn't matter where he lives. Where was it sent from? And so there's this constant like ping ponging because, you know, because law enforcers don't want want these cases. And and it's true even among the federal law enforcers, because, you know, the feds kind of the FBI and DOJ look at crimes and prioritize the ones that they want to fight based on how much financial damage has been wrought. And so they look at one individual, one woman, you know, who's under attack and think, well, you know, is that the best way for us to use our resources? In both this Ryan and Lynn case that I just described, as well in Francesca's case, it wasn't until there were, you know, widespread bomb threats and, uh, you know, these hoax threats before if, you know, these offenders finally got arrested. Mm, mm, mm. Well, yeah, and you start the book with the um, Francesca Rossi and Juan Thompson case, which is just, I mean, it's like, it reads like, like, like a horror film or something. What happened and why did you choose to open the book with that story? Um, 
I chose that story because I wanted to choose a story that involved, you know, stalking, like a representative case of stalking and a case that had gone, you know, from start, middle to end. And one of the things about that case is that he was, uh, Juan Thompson was impersonating other people committing crimes against Francesca. And she originally came to us because she was the victim of revenge porn. And she thought that she knew who did it. And I said, you know, that just defies all the patterns that I know. I don't think it was the person you think it is. I can't send him a cease and desist. Um, You know, this is somebody that uh, has a lot to lose. You said you don't remember ever sending him the nudes. Uh, You had an amicable breakup. It was long ago. It just doesn't seem right. And, And so then, of course, she came back later and um, you know, several months later and had gotten bogus lawsuits that we then tracked to her current boyfriend that she was living with. And that I, I chose that case because it involved so many different forms of the harassment that we see. And it also is because, you know, we see these cases so much that I can really pick up on the patterns. Um, you know, this, this involved revenge porn, uh, hoax threats, uh, a lot of online stalking across platforms, um, him trying to um, recruit other people on platforms um, like Reddit to, to harass her, saying that she had ties to Gamergate. Um, and it, it just, it, and, and he also, I mean, he like went into hiding. He faked his death. It was so extreme, but also parts of it are, Parts of it kind of um, foreshadow every other case that, that we talk about in, in the book. And Francesca is such a, an amazing, strong client um, and was, you know, so willing to, to share her story. that It seemed like the, mm. the right place to begin. And, you know, mm. we, I tell a lot of stories in, in this book, um, but also these stories are, are used to kind of squirt in information and policy and, uh, and ideas so that the, the reader goes away with, with an understanding of stalking law and revenge porn law and, and the, um, the challenges that we face when we try to hold tech companies liable. Mm-hmm. Well, in that vein, right, you mentioned the Hessek case, Earlier, Herrick case. I'm sorry. Earlier, and I, you know, I know that you've been a pretty prominent voice in the discussion around Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and the intermediary safe harbor that that it creates. I wonder if you could talk about what happened in the Herrick case, sort of why Section 230 was relevant to that, and sort of why you think that's a problem we need to deal with. Yeah. Um- so my client, Matthew Herrick, um, was 33 at the time. This was a couple years ago. And he had just ended a relationship with a man. And that man uh, basically set out on a, a campaign uh, to destroy Matthew. And one of the most pernicious things that he did was create profiles on the gay dating app Grinder impersonating Matthew, using Matthew's picture, and then saying that Matthew was into really hardcore BDSM sex, had drugs to share. 
and um, and then had rape fantasies. And then the um, the offender would then use the, the use grinder to set up sex dates. And men would then come to Matthew's home to his job at all hours to have sex with him. And sometimes believing that he had rape fantasies and sometimes believing that if he protested, that that was just part of the act because that was what the offender was direct messaging um, to these guests pretending to be Matthew. It was terrifying. Like over 1,200 people came in a five to six month period. We're talking 23 people a day in real life, (laughs) in real life. And Matthew couldn't do anything. He wasn't even a grinder user. He brought none of this on himself. And he went to the police. He went to like 12 or 14 times. He had an order of protection. He did everything that he possibly could to help himself. And it still continued. And he um, you know, would have the visitors that weren't terrifying and who believed that he hadn't sent them, he would have them flag the accounts. He um, even created a grinder profile and and would you know try to find um, the offenders' accounts and, and flag those. But grinder just ignored it and ignored it like over and over again. And so when Matthew came to me, I was I was like hot and heavy, thinking that I could just solve the day by you know, getting in touch with Grinders general counsel. At the time I'd worked with um, like, uh, I'd worked with like Facebook and Twitter and Google on helping get revenge porn policies instituted on their platform. So I thought like, oh, I can just, you know, call up the executives and, and get this straight out. But then they ignored me, which I was like, uh, you know, other effects on my ego. And so Matthew and I decided... <laughs> that seems like... Ignoring you seems like a really bad idea. <laughs> bad idea. Terrible. Um, <laughs> uh, so I um, said, you know, Matthew, I really feel like we only have one option. We need to sue. And we were both like, we obviously can't sue JC, the offender, because if somebody's not afraid of law, they're not afraid of the criminal law, it's a complete nightmare to sue them civilly. I would never do that to a client who's, who's, um, who's being stalked. You just, you know, basically you're setting them up for a, a life of hell because they have to now see their offender and go to court with their offender. And then their offender, you know, brings up all these bogus counterclaims and, and it's, you know, and then can, you know, go through discovery and and it basically makes a, a, a stalking victim's problems tenfold. Plus, you know, this guy was judgment proof. So I said, you know, we have to sue Grinder. We have to get an injunct an injunction uh, requiring that they exclude uh, JC. And so we did that, and we actually were successful. We got a court order saying that against Grinder, saying that they had to exclude this guy, and we served it on them. And they ignored us again, Brian. <laughs> and um, that made us even more mad. And we ultimately um, were in federal court. Finally, their lawyers appeared. And their lawyers told us that their client, Grinder, did not have the 
technological ability to identify and remove an abusive user. And they said that even if they did, they wouldn't have to help because they were protected by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which says that interactive computer services are immune from liability for information content provided by a third-party content provider. In other words, they're saying that this law protected them from, from liability and they couldn't be held responsible and they didn't have to help. And we, of course, were aware of this law and knew that Grindr would plead or would say that they were protected by this law. And so we were very, very careful not to, not to um, basically hold Grindr liable for any of JC's words. And so this wasn't about, you know, defamation or impersonation. We were suing Grindr for their own role and, you know, them basically deceiving the public and making it appear for, through their terms of service that they could, um, you know, that they had the ability to exclude users. And when in court, they told us that, you know, even though they actually own the patent to geolocating technology and have a super sophisticated product, when they told us that they couldn't exclude a user, then we're like, you have a defective product. Your product was designed defectively because it's an absolute certainty that if you own an app that facilitates in-person contact and relies on geolocating technology, then absolutely from time to time, it's going to be abused by stalkers, rapists, child predators, and it's completely a derelict dereliction of, of duties if you didn't you know, think about that and design into your product remedies. And so this became a product liability case. And the court threw the case out <laughs> and we appealed to the Second Circuit. And they also um, mm. told us that, again, Matthew had no, you know, had no claims against Grindr. And so we've now taken it to the, um, we've petitioned to the Supreme Court um, for them to hear the issue, because this was not about third-party content. This was about holding Grindr liable for its own actions and inactions and its own like product. Mm. And to, to say that just because it is a company that, you know, interacts with the, with, with, with the internet, to say that it is immune from any kind of liability and any kind of damages to the general public is, I mean, that's, that's a huge, I mean, that's the most, that's the most expansive interpretation of section 230 that I've ever mm. heard of, because it basically says, says that mm. these, these companies are beyond the reach of our, of our law, of our courts. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going on and on, but it's, it's like, you know, like I, I'm a tort lawyer and I believe fundamentally that for the price of an index number, Somebody without a pot to piss in can hold liable, can make the richest person, Jeff Bezos, the richest company, come to the table if, mm. if the victim's been harmed. And I, I, I believe in that. I believe that's what our courts are for. And for there to be this entire industry, not to mention the most powerful, wealthy, data-rich industry, 
like that has no responsibility to to the general public to to the users that it's minting money off of it's just it's so upsetting and it's there's no other industry that gets this kind of exceptional treatment mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, so as you know, I mean, I have a lot of friends and acquaintances who are in the kind of strong section 230 camp, but you know, I, I, I gotta say, I'm personally really very sympathetic to the, to the points you and people like Daniel Citrone are making that, I mean, if that's, if the law says that internet platforms can never be liable for the speech of third parties or speech of their users or the actions for that matter of their users and the laws and ass. Well, right. I mean, that just, <laughs> that just can't be right. <laughs> but Brian, that's not what the law even says. The law, you know, this was created in 1996 when the internet was a very different place and it was intended to, to deal with like publication when, you know, like they didn't want to hold bulletin boards liable for you know, the publication torts like defamation and obscenity when their mm. users were the ones publishing stuff. So it's like if I were to say that, um, you know, if I were to say that, you know, you own a carpet business and you uh, your carpets come with bed bugs and you sued me, you would not also have had the right to sue Prodigy where where um, mm. where I said this. It kind of, I mean, that makes sense because there's so much content, but it doesn't make sense mm. when we're suing under other kinds of torts like product liability um, or when there's been really, really extreme harms. Mm, mm, mm. So, so, so Carrie, I mean, if I were in the position to like hand you a pen and say, go ahead and rewrite section 230 along with all the kind of judicial interpretations of section 230, what would your version say? Or would you just like cross it out? So I would, my first choice would be to cross it out because I feel that tort law already does a good job of weeding out cases because you have to show causation, you have to show damages. And so in a lot of the, you know, everyone's like, oh my God, we're going to, you know, end free speech on the internet if if companies can be held liable to the users. Um, Not true. (laughs) No indication of that. But also it's... um, you know, like there's going to be a real causation problem in most cases, uh, you know, of people trying to sue the internet, internet companies. Um, and it's cases like Matthews where there's been, you know, you know, real, I think, product defects that should be able to, you know, you know, get into the tort system. Um, so I would, I would eradicate it because I think it's, it should be redundant. Um, but mm. if not for the fact that courts have interpreted it so broadly over the years. Now, my second choice would be, and this is what I'm asking the Supreme Court do, I want, number one, I want it to be clearly, clearly like black letter law, an affirmative defense. So in Matthew's case, Grindr didn't even have to serve pleadings. They didn't even have to say, yes, we're an interactive computer service and your claims are, you know, it's, they're based on third-party content and you're suing us for publishing that information. They didn't even have to say it. The court concluded that on their own in a 12B6 motion to dismiss, which is, and, and they did it with prejudice, which is kind of the most severe thing that you can do to a litigant and in a very, very early stage. Um, so number one, you know, it, it needs to be an affirmative defense. These companies have to at least plead 
that they're protected by this. And then secondly, we need to we need clarity about what information content provider is. Is you know, I don't believe that <laughs> the product design is information content provided by a third party. Grinder is responsible for its own design and the coding and and should be able to be sued when it's broken um so i i think that there needs to be yeah i mean um there needs to be just a a narrowing of um what icp is Mm, mm, mm. yeah that makes a lot of sense to me so so carrie in addition I, i mean i'm a mostly a copyright law scholar. So I, I, I feel an obligation to ask you about how mm-hmm. you've used copyright law in revenge porn cases. So, I mean, like, I, I wonder if you could describe sort of how you've used copyright as as a tool. And then maybe if you don't mind, sort of reflect a little bit on kind of how well it's worked or maybe hasn't worked. And like, if you had or could have a different tool that you could use or a different sort of strategy that could be created or a different kind of way of proceeding, whether there, there was something you think might work better. So copyright law has been a real friend of mine um, in terms of getting clients' images off the internet. And we, of course, use the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and which you know has statutory language that you can give to um, a website or a social, um, why am I thinking, social media company, <laughs> brain fart, um, and, and basically say there's a copyright infringement um, on your platform. And strangely, copyright is one area of law that a lot of companies actually take seriously. A lot of websites do all over the, the country and, and the world even, even some of the sketchiest ones. Um, and so it's, it's, it works in some contexts. Now, back in 2014, when I first opened the law firm, copyright was one of the only remedies available to victims. So we didn't have very many states that had criminal laws. And none of the platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Google, um, had any bans on revenge porn. And so we could only use these DMCA takedown notices um, to get to get material removed, which is it's it's really a clumsy tool because it just you know if your pictures are on 900 different URLs, you have to send 900 <laughs> takedown notices. You know you have to go to every mm-hmm. single website, and it's a constant um, process of of checking and updating and. Uh, you know, we have spreadsheets for every client that we do it for, where we, you know, send these letters, go back, send them again, um, check on them, you know, put it into into the Google search caches. And, um, and then, of course, it also only covers situations where the client owns the copyright. So it doesn't, so, you know, it covers selfies. But if, if this is, you know, if they're pictures that an ex-boyfriend took, um, then he technically owns the copyright. And so we have some cases where we actually have to demand or even purchase the copyright for our client so that we can then be the DMCA agent for her. Um, yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I remember though, like 
one of my first and most terrifying experiences after starting the law firm was was um, debating Lee Rowland, who worked at the ACLU at the time, on on revenge porn. And basically, she's like, you know, there was a whole trove of these people who were like, copyright does it. You don't need anything else. Copyright gets you all the way there. And I was like, no, that gets us the content removed. It doesn't punish the offender. It doesn't make the offender stop. It only deals with with selfies and it only deals with, with, um, compliant, um, platforms, not to mention the fact that at the time, um, Harvard had a tool where they were publishing DMCA notices because they feared that they were being overused. And so clients Mm. were then clients letters asking for content removal was then actually published, you know, with their name and the URL, Mm. And this is Harvard. Um, uh, So, you know, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of, that's copyright. Um, And, and very few, you know, if in situations where the website was not compliant, then, you know, what was the victim going to do? Sue for copyright infringement? Actually sue? You know, many of the websites were registered overseas or, anonymously under proxy. And so, um, even, you know, so it, it, it's an incomplete tool. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, I gotta say, I'm personally really conflicted about it because sort of in the abstract as a copyright scholar, I think of copyright as sort of intended to encourage the distribution of, of works of authorship, but I totally understand why, under the circumstances as a litigator, I mean, you not only can, but should use whatever tool you've got. I mean, if it's going to work, then use it and who cares what the uh, theoretical policy policy goal is. But I I wonder if there's like something that would work better. Like if you had your choice of tools, what would it be? What do you want? Well, I mean, first of all, I want, I want, I feel that illegal material should automatically the copyright for illegal material should automatically um, belong to the the victim. So if you're the victim of child pornography, of revenge porn, of filmed sextortion, of rape tapes, all of which you know are uh, very common issues in my law firm, then I want my client to own the copyright and be able to to get content down. It's a it's an issue. That I, you know, particularly with the copyrightability of unlawful material, um, is an issue like facing victims of child pornography who didn't film the content and have no legal ownership of it to get it down. Mm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, and so I guess if I had, I just I I feel that. There's, you know, I, I don't know what the solution is when it comes to content removal, um, mm-hmm. because really the power lies in whoever's in control of the website or the social media company. I mean, mm. I wish that there was more hashing of images so that it would be easier for victims to know everywhere on the Internet where their stuff is. And then, you know, with a click of the button, they could they could get it down. Um I don't see I don't see the world going in that direction. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, so so so, Carrie, I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of what sort of precipitated you creating your own law firm and pursuing this path because it you know it hasn't been your entire legal career. Um, and also, like one thing I really liked in your book was how you kind of talked about a shift in mindset that enabled you to do the work that you're doing so well and so effectively. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. So I mean, my education into the world of online privacy and sexual violence was not a voluntary one. Um, I had experienced something really traumatic um, shortly before meeting a man who became my boyfriend and who was very protective of me after I told him about this traumatic thing. And um, very shortly, that relationship became um, scary and abusive. And when I tried to break up with him, he told me that he was going to spend the rest of his life uh, destroying mine. And I, it was absolute hell. Um, and I already was a lawyer, but I didn't know what to do. He was sending me constant emails and text messages and phone calls, threatening me, threatening to have me raped. Um, he tried to break into my apartment. I had to move. He would file false police reports. I got arrested. He would make these, uh, you know, I would get lawsuits from him all the time for completely bogus things. It was nonstop. When I tried to get an order of protection, he tried to cross petition for one. Um, you know, like it's really common um, among my cases where the offenders use the court system as a weapon, like he did. Um, and one of the scariest things that he was doing, or kind of felt the most permanent, was that he was uh, he had naked pictures and, and videos of me, and then he would send me emails telling me that he'd blind copied all these people. And that's how I kind of discovered that, oh my God, I have, there's no legal recourse. He can actually do that. And it's probably not even illegal. And when I went to get, you know, I went to the police, they told me to go to family court. I went to family court and the judge told me that, um, that he, he, that my offender, um, had a first amendment right (laughs) to, to, uh, post my pictures. And that was such a eureka moment. And I, um, you know, at the time was working with elderly people and, you know, needed a lawyer that kind of was at this intersection of intimate partner violence and internet crimes and understood first amendment and, and criminal law and just like knew what to do with a creative motivated, um, you know, guy on a scorched earth attack. And I had, you know, I, I got help from a couple different lawyers, but it was just, um, but it, it was always like a, the novel case for them. It was like, you know, they'd never seen anything like it. And same with the prosecutors. So, so I ultimately, when I finally got the bogus charges against me dropped and he pled guilty, I, you know, just had this crazy moment of, of courage and I quit my job and started, decided to start a law firm. 
And that was five and a half years ago. And for a very long time, it was just me and then my one associate intern. And now we're a staff of 13 people and we have a big, beautiful office. And I wrote a book, you know, like life has really changed so much from those really dark, dark days. Mm, 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 mm. Well, so, so Carrie, in, in closing, I, I wonder if there's anything that I should have asked you about, but I haven't, or there's any kind of ideas or thoughts or observations you want to leave for listeners at the end of the show? Well, I mean, I think that one thing I'd like to say is that, you know, for me, the stuff that got me to where I am, it it really wouldn't have happened without like this really traumatic stuff happening. And it, it carved my, my path and pushed me forward and gave me a purpose. And, and it, because I had to learn to trust myself during the process of, of getting the restraining order and, and making myself safe, I just, I, I, I just became so much more self-reliant than I'd ever been before. And I just think that, you know, it's, I know a lot of um, your listeners are lawyers and, and hopefully some law students. And I just want to tell them that a law license can be used in really, really creative ways. And you can think about, you know, the greatest pain or the greatest happiness or the greatest fear and figure out how to carve a whole career out of that. Um, and it's, it's possible. And, and, um, I feel like I'm really gifted to have found a way to do that. That's awesome. Well, Carrie, thanks so much for coming on the show today and congratulations on your absolutely fucking fantastic book. Oh, thank you. This has been really fun. And I hope all your listeners will, will read the book. I think it appeals, um, kind of across populations. Phone number. 
Yeah, she the one that's 